Well, welcome to Missouri Farm Bureau's podcast, Digging In. I am special guest host Garrett Hawkins, and I am thrilled to be with you as we continue our climate series, as we focus on the hot topic of climate policy, uh, all things climate that are being discussed in Washington, D.C., and, and really around the country and around the globe. This week, we're joined by Dave Miller, who is no stranger to Farm Bureau. Actually, I got to know Dave many years ago when he was working uh, as a part of the Iowa Farm Bureau team. Dave is an economist. He's a farmer. He's really a jack of all trades. And this week, we've asked Dave to, to join us to talk about carbon credit trading. It's hard to pick up a farm publication these days without uh, seeing an article about potential new revenue streams from carbon credit trading. Dave has a little experience with this and actually joined us at our commodity conference in August. So so Dave, I, I'm I'm thrilled that you were able to to tune in today. I know harvest is rolling in Iowa. Uh, if you want to give a quick update on harvest on, on your farm and give us a little background, that would be great. Yeah, I appreciate that, Garrett. Uh, yeah, a uh, little background on me. Uh, uh, Grew up in Indiana on a farm, and uh, but uh, started working for uh, American Farm Bureau in the 1991, and uh, spent about seven years with American Farm Bureau as a uh, bo both as a grain analyst, uh, policy analyst, and a livestock policy analyst. Uh, moved to Iowa in 1998 and spent 20 over 20 years with Iowa Farm Bureau as the director of research and commodity services. And while at Iowa Farm Bureau was uh, significantly involved with establishment of aggregate climate credits, uh, which was a subsidiary of Iowa Farm Bureau, which was designed to Pre, uh, allow a market-based uh, approach to carbon credits uh, through the Chicago Climate Exchange uh, relative to our, our current uh, farming operation. Uh, we finished up corn harvest on uh, Monday night and have switched over to beans and now, now that we've switched to beans, it's getting wet and uh, cloudy out. So today was actually a pretty good day to do a podcast. <laughs> well, well, that's good. Glad we could time it right, Dave. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so tell me, let, let, let's take a step back because I am I I remember when this all of this came about in Iowa Farm Bureau and the discussions that were happening, you know, across the country, you know, really. You know, if you think about it, more than a decade ago. But for our listening audience. In the most basic terms, what is a carbon credit? It's a good question. At their most elementary form, carbon credits are simply a quantification of the carbon permanently eliminated from being released or carbon that is captured and sequestered for a substantial time period. Typically, carbon credits are quantified and referenced as the CO2 equivalent of whichever greenhouse gas is being quantified. This is done so that multiple greenhouse gases can be compared on a common basis, such as CO2, you know, carbon dioxide, methane, nitrous oxide, and the various aerosols that are also classified as greenhouse gases. 
carbon release or capture can be quantified on a variety of sources and sinks. From an agricultural standpoint, probably the two most prevalent are soil carbon sinks, i.e. carbon that is stored in the soil as soil organic matter, or carbon uh, equivalent of methane releases. Uh, a third one for agriculture is the nitrous oxide uh, equivalent uh, that is a release of greenhouse gases from the application of nitrogen fertilizers. Okay, so that, that gives us the, the basics. Now, you know, when I think about Iowa Farm Bureau and your uh, engagement kind of early on, it kind of reminds me of the old Barbara Mandrell song, I was country before country was cool, right? So you guys were in this discussion at its very earliest stages. How how did that come about? What did that look like within Iowa Farm Bureau? I mean, that's a big decision to to form a subsidiary to really tackle an emerging market at the time. Yeah, at, at the time, the if we go back to 2001, in, uh, into 2002, uh, there were efforts, uh, a group of people up in Chicago were, uh, that had been involved with the development of various futures and uh, financial instruments uh, traded at the Board of Trade and the Mercantile Exchange, etc., started looking at carbon. And uh, carbon credits were being talked about somewhat and from an Iowa Farm Bureau perspective, we, we made the decision that we could be more effective as a policy organization being on the inside of those discussions and helping frame them so that they got the agricultural side of this correct, if you will, than simply trying to be responsive and reactive after things were already decided. And so uh, the leadership at Iowa Farm Bureau and, and the board approved uh, my participation in the Chicago Climate Exchange. I became active on their offset committee. And as a trial balloon, we, we started acting as an aggregator of agricultural climate credits uh, through the Chicago Climate Exchange protocols initially just in Iowa. And the first year we did it, we had about 200 contracts. Uh, and these were 10-year contracts um, that uh, required, uh, in this case, either uh, continuous no-till or conversion of or establishment of grass on uh, uh, previously cropped acreage and uh, we, we we started working out the protocols for what well, what does it mean to to register the land with the climate exchange uh, as an aggregator how do we pull that together how do you create the software and other things like that uh, and and we, we did that and I think our first sale was someplace around $2 a ton CO2 equivalent. And 
started the program. And as we were doing that simultaneously, the Chicago Climate Exchange developed a rangeland protocol for uh, improved and active management of rangeland. They, they developed, uh, at the offset committee, we developed a, a two different forestry protocols. And at the same time, the word was getting out that we were doing this, and we started being contacted by farmers from other states uh, that uh, wanted to uh, participate, and we contacted a number of uh, state farm bureaus around Iowa, and they said, well, yeah, go ahead. And, uh, That, that's fine. At the same time, the North Dakota Farmers Union was uh, setting up an aggregation program of the Farmers Union up in North Dakota. And it, the, the, kind of the fast forward of that is by about 2007, we were operating in 31 states with protocols for soil carbon, uh, grassland, rangeland, for reforestation, afforestation, and methane destruction on the digestion. So, so y'all, so y'all ramped up pretty quickly. Um, yep. I mean, y- y- you had success. And at the by by two thousand seven or eight, we were um, we were probably the largest aggregator of agricultural carbon credits under any protocol, probably in the world. Uh, there were some European programs going on, there were some Canadian programs going on, but I think we were probably actually the largest aggregator uh, that were was in the marketplace at the time. Uh, one of the things that we learned is that uh, you know, and, and as part of the process, and the, and the climate exchange was always, at, at its heart, was a learning process. And we understood that. That, uh, so one of the things we learned is there are some criteria that carbon credits must meet. And, and one is that carbon credits generally are not issued for any reductions that are mandated by law. If the law already says you have to do something, you're not going to get a credit for doing it. Uh, credits are, they have four major criteria. One is that you have to be able to have an accurate way to measure the credit. And that gets into the verification and the, the measurement of, of process that's going to use. The sequestration must be relatively permanent. And that's that's an interesting way to. So, what what do you mean by relatively? No, go ahead. No, I was just. What do you mean by relatively? Well, the Chicago Climate Exchange, again, because we're learning, they they define permanence as having been achieved if you did ten years of the contract. They were not trying to regulate or define things beyond that. On the other hand, some of the early protocols from California required 200 years of compliance. 200 years? Did I hear you correctly? Yes. <laughs> All right. Okay. So, and there are others that wanted, if there, 
wanted no time limit. They wanted it perpetual. So that's one of the big issues that is out there. In general, what we find is agriculture cannot, uh, soil-based carbon credits can never be perpetual. There's too much weather and or management activities that happen on the land that require some level of disturbance of the soil. And so trying to figure out what, what, how do you deal with this whole issue of permanence was one of the learning activities, if you will, of the Chicago Climate Exchange. Because one thing you could do is discount uh, the crediting rate you give, assuming you're not, you're not going to achieve strict permanence, that some leakage is going to occur. And the example is, if an activity such as no-till actually sequesters about one ton of CO2 equivalent a year in a good mid Midwestern soil, maybe you only give them six-tenths of a ton credit. And you assume 40% of it is not going to be permanent. And so you only credit the permanent fraction of that. So there's ways to deal with this whole issue of permanence, but there are others that say if any part of it is never permanent, none of it can be permanent. So that's a policy-type decision that needs to be framed up. And it was one of the issues that which within the Chicago Climate Exchange that we dealt with it, relative to, one, by using a discounted crediting approach, and but attach that to a limited legal time frame of commitment. A couple different, a couple uh, more uh, criteria that we talked about at the Chicago Climate Exchange and that are always a part of carbon credit uh, policy things are uh, additionality and what that means is the credit must arise from actions that are beyond the normal course of business. Nobody's going to give you a credit for doing what you've always done. And in general, the, the market says, we want you to do something beyond standard operating procedure, beyond just the normal course of business in order to generate a credit. And then the fourth uh, criteria is leak. The actions that create carbon credits should not adversely affect carbon stocks or emissions elsewhere or create other negative issues for society or the environment. And just moving carbon stocks from one geographical location to another does not necessarily create a credit. An example of that is if I, I can increase the soil organic matter on a field by dumping a lot of manure on it. But all I've done is move the carbon stock from a hog house to a field. I haven't necessarily created a long-term permanence. Uh, you know, so there's, there's things you've got to deal with in terms of if what you're doing is, if the extra carbon is resulting from Roots and soil organic matter being created, those types of things, that probably can create a credit. 
if all you're doing is moving carbon stock from one location that was created by, for example, feeding cattle to or hogs to a field, and then you want to claim a credit on that field, you're going to have to subtract from that all the carbon that was created in feeding operation. That, that solves some of the leakage issues. The other leakage issue that's talked about is something uh, that ethanol deals with from a carbon standpoint, and that's called indirect land use. If I take crop, if by creating, for example, a biofuel, am I creating deforestation in Southeast Asia in order for them to grow more palm oil or the soybean oil that's going into biodiesel. That's a leakage issue. And in general, at the macro level, leakage issues have to be considered and taken into account in most crediting programs. So those are the four major criteria that we kind of worked out and dealt with uh, in the early exchange were quantification, permanence, additionality, and leakage. So Dave, you, you have summed up very well um, the criteria and, and I guess reinforced in my mind that this gets complicated really fast. And, you know, when, when I'm at the feed store or uh, when I'm running around town uh, grabbing supplies and and I have a minute and I have a conversation with a fellow farmer, you know, if this comes up, it's a complex topic. And, and honestly for, you know, I'm a cow calf guy, right? So, so uh, I'm trying to make sure that I'm stewarding my pasture, taking care of the forage, right? So that I can maximize, you know, stocking, et cetera. But when I read the, when I hear and read the criteria, I have to question what's in it for me. Like, you know, you've got a lot of farmers out here who are saying we're already doing good things in terms of we're not getting credit for the, the stewardship practices that we're already doing. So, so that's a point that I hear time and time again, uh, not just at home, but as I travel around the state. So, and clearly, you know, when you talk about these criteria, the expectation then and, and now is that there's got to be more done, right? Am I summing that up correctly? That That is, there's a major segment of the, and I'll call it the environmental community, that want some level of additionality. They, they you know, basically they're saying, if you're doing it for current economics, why do you need a credit? for what you're already doing. It makes economic sense to do it without any credit. And so strict additionality criteria that's applied to carbon credit says you're only going to get credit for that which goes above and beyond what you would do for normal good management practices. Uh, that you've got to do something extra. Uh, now, the Chicago Climate Exchange, we took a little different approach on additionality, and, and, but again, it was one that uh, not everybody in the environmental community agrees with, but it's one of the big challenges, I would argue, for soil-based credits. Uh, my opinion is that soil-based offsets will never be good enough for 
a significant segment of the environmental community. They, their focus first is regulation of what I call the smokestack community, power plants and other places that have source point of emissions, and they want those reduced. They don't necessarily want those to continue happening and simply having a credit come from somebody doing something in their farm field. On the other hand, there is a, it, it, what is also clear is that soils can and, and should be a part of major climate processes and or uh, procedures for quantifying what's happening with greenhouse gases on a global basis. And farmers, I would argue, ought to be recognized for what they're doing uh, in terms of environmental stewardship and climate activity. But ag offsets have a real problem of meeting permanence, additionality, and leakage. All three of those create a lot of problem for soil-based credits, and yet the it's very clear that soils probably can be have been recognized in the literature as being a source of being a major sink for carbon, and particularly over the next 30 to 50 years, which from the environmental community really is the critical time period of of taking action on carbon so that they want to incentivize activities that do sequester more carbon in the soils because soils are a good carbon sink but they don't necessarily want to recognize credits that would be useful in offsetting smokestack emissions thank you for listening to this episode of digging in with missouri farm bureau Tune back in next week to hear the rest of our carbon credit discussion with Dave Miller. Thank you.